One of my favorite children's storybook is Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Alexander was one of those boys who seems to have everything he touched go wrong. He's the one who gets gum in his hair, trips over his skateboard, drops his sweater in the sink when the water is running, and all this before he has breakfast. In his box of cereal, there was nothing special in it while his siblings got special toys in their boxes of cereals. In the carpool, he ended up squished into the middle seat in the back. He was told he sang too loud in his, at the singing time. And guess whose mother forgot to pack a dessert in his lunchbox? After school, his mom took the children to the dentist. There was only one cavity found. That was in the mouth of Alexander. The elevator door closed on his foot. He fell in the mud. They went to buy sneakers, and his brother got, brothers got their choice, but they were out of Alexander's choice, so he had to get white. There were lima beans for dinner, and he hated lima beans. There was kissing on TV, and he hated kissing. His bath was too hot. His, he got soap in his eyes, and his marble went down the drain. His nightlight burned out. He bit his tongue, and the cat didn't want to sleep with him. It had been a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day, and Alexander decided that he was moving to Australia. His mother assured him that there would be days like this, even on Australia. Now, we laugh, but we've all been there. Now, maybe you didn't want to move to Australia, but we've all had times when it seems like everything we do goes wrong, and we end up going in to a pit, as it were. Our life, which was pretty good before, is suddenly down in the pits. Now, if all you had to do was worry about what happens in Washington, D.C., or Springfield, or Chicago, or Myanmar, or Haiti, Honduras, or China, you would have enough to keep you awake at night, many nights. But then you add to that all of your own personal issues that come. These last two years, have been devastating in our lives. We've had to wear a mask everywhere we go. We've been locked down in our homes for a long time period. Uh, we may have lost a loved one to COVID. The school children have suffered. They've been home. They've been in school. They've been back at home. They've been everywhere. Work has suffered for the same reasons. Mental anxieties have been on the rise. You may have lost your job. The car that you'd been nursing along has finally quit, and there's no money to replace it. Maybe you received a note from the mortgage company saying you were too far behind in your payments and you were going to be evicted. And maybe the doctor gave you some news that was not pleasant news and, and was not good news at all. It's enough to make you want to curl up into a fetal position and just say goodbye, cruel world. Now, I realize that the picture I painted is likely an extreme for most of us here. We haven't had those kinds of events. But all of us have had experiences over the last years that would indicate that things are not going right. Now, maybe there were times when your life seemed pretty good. Not perfect, 
but, but at least it was bearable and things were moving along well. And then suddenly it all started to go wrong. And there are times when you think the only way you're going to see the bottom of the pit is if you look up. You're that far down. So the question I have is at that point, where do we go? What do we do? What are the lessons that we can learn? And where's our hope? Well, for that, I want to turn to the book of Job. And you want to say, Job? Really? For hope? For encouragement? Yes, there are a lot of lessons there that we need to learn that are going to help us as we move into the year 2022. Job is probably the one biblical individual who most symbolizes or is most synonymous with disaster and suffering. And so let's look at Job chapter 1. We read in Job chapter 1, as was read earlier, but just a reminder, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. Now, we don't know very much about this man, Job. In fact, we know nothing from outside of the book of Job itself other than Ezekiel and James make mention of him once as a real person. So we know we're dealing with a historical person. Scholars have differed for centuries over who he was, when he lived, and where he lived. There's no record anywhere else of a man named Job. It is very likely that he lived during the patriarch uh, period of time between uh, sometime when Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived, somewhere between 2000 and 1000 BC. We know he lived in the land of Uz, but nobody knows exactly where Uz was. You say that fast. Uz was where? We don't know. But it's probably east of Canaan, somewhere near a desert area, possibly in northern Saudi Arabia or southern Jordan. We know he lived in an area where he could farm because he was farming. And he lived near a town, as we read later on in the book. The, Job, the book does not tell us whether Job was an Israelite or a non-Israelite. There are many clues that seem to indicate probably a non-Israelite, but we don't know that for sure. But that's, what, that's all we know about Job uh, in, in that area, but we do have some clues as to who he was. We read about his character. First of all, this man was blameless and upright. The word blameless means to be morally innocent, to be ethically pure. Uh, some translations say integrity. He was a man of integrity. He was honest. He was upright. He was truthful. He, he was faithful to his family. There was marital faithfulness there. There was a just treatment of his servants. There was generosity to the poor. There was an avoidance of idolatry. There was a man who was not perfect, but certainly living an exemplary life. Along with that, he was upright. The word upright uh, is exactly what it sounds like. He was upright. He was standing up straight, not only in his, person, in his uh, physical uh, appearance, but in terms of his character. He was upright. Again, the idea of honesty, the idea of a, qu a quality of heart that was walking with God, that would, was compassionate toward others as well. It is listed in the list of uh, elders' requirements in, in the book of Titus. The elder is to be an upright person along with holy and disciplined and self-controlled. And so all of those ideas come together. 
Job had a character that was quality, a quality man. Job also had great faith. We're told he feared God and he shunned evil. To fear God is a solid trust in God. He was wholly devoted to serving God. Now, the word fear is an, is an interesting word because its initial and primary meaning means that sense of dread and fear as we think of fear, when you are afraid of something or someone. There was that sense here with Job, not that he was a man who trembled in front of an offended deity as, as so many of the foreign uh, idol worshipers would fear their gods, but he was a man who respected God, a man who obeyed his laws and recognized who God was. God is a God of holiness, a God of majesty, justice. God is one to be, to be recognized as, as the God of the universe. And Job understood that, and he reached out to that uh, picture. And then the other side of fearing God is to turn away from evil. You know, see, you see, you can't fear God and still enjoy evil. Those two don't go together. And so, because he feared God, he turned away from, uh, from evil. He was one who wanted nothing to do with evil, not even the appearance of evil. An example of that comes out in chapter 31 of the book of Job. 31 verse 1. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Now, that's a commitment to turning away from even the appearance of evil. Job's life was not, so much, not just doing what is right. Job's life was also not doing or avoiding that which was wrong. So we've seen his character. We've seen his faith. Now there's a, uh, an indication of his wealth. Job was a very wealthy man. He owned 7,000 small livestock. It's a word that can mean both sheep and goats, but it is believed he probably had more sheep than he had goats. He had 3,000 camels. These were animals that Israelites rarely used, and so there's an indication here that possibly this was, he was a non-Israelite especially since Leviticus indicates that a camel is an unclean animal. So he had 3,000 camels. He had 500 yoke of oxen, a yoke being a pair. So he had 500 pairs of oxen, meaning 1,000 oxen. They could plow a lot of land, and so they were used for the plowing of his fields. And, and so it, it indicated he was a wealthy landowner as well. And he had then 500 donkeys. Now, Hebrew has uh, an interesting or, or has the t a special term for female donkey and a special term for a male donkey. This word used here is for female donkeys. So he had 500 female donkeys. And uh, why they're picked out, I don't know, because he obviously must have had some male donkeys around in order to help the, the female donkeys reproduce. One reason people kept female donkeys was they could reproduce. They could give milk. And apparently, uh, female donkeys were easier to ride than male donkeys. I don't have any experience in that. Maybe you do. But uh, in, in this case, they had female donkeys uh, on the farm. And included in that 
uh, repertoire of inventory of uh, goods and possessions that Job had were many, many servants and slaves. He was a very wealthy man. It says that he is the greatest man among all the people of, of the East. Now, as I was looking at that, I, I, got to, I, I remembered a verse in Matthew chapter 19 where Jesus was telling the disciples that it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's pretty difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, but it's not impossible. Job proved that it is not impossible for a wealthy person to come into the kingdom of God. So we found about his character, his faith, his wealth, his family comes next. We're told that he had seven sons and, seven and three daughters. This is a picture that the author paints of a family that loves each other. They get along together. They have parties together. Just imagine they had birthday parties. There were seven children, which means seven different, or ten rather, ten children. That means ten birthday parties. If you spread them out, you've got almost a whole year covered with birthday parties every month. And then you add a few religious activities. Uh, this was a group of children that loved to have fun and loved to get together. And there's no indication here that these were immoral or drunken orgies or anything wrong with these parties. They just loved to come together as a family and have fun. We don't know how often Job and his wife were invited. I'm sure they were invited sometimes, but I'm sure many of these parties were just the kids. And uh, they rec we recognize that Job and his wife did a pretty good job of raising their children. They got along together. They loved each other. They celebrated together. It is possible, as scholars believe, that the girls were unmarried. Since the sons invited the daughters, they probably still lived at home. But no matter how well they were raised, there was a conscientious father who would continually offer sacrifices on behalf of his children, just in case somewhere along the line they had stepped over the, the line of, of worshiping and following God to being uh, immoral or sinful in any way. There's no indication they were, but he wanted to make very sure. You see, he was a father who was really concerned about his children. And I'm certain that there was also verbal follow-up conversation with his children about how to live and how to respond and how to continue to follow God. You see, friends, those of you who have children, they are for life. It doesn't matter the age of your child. A newborn, a toddler, a high schooler, a college student, a married daughter or son with children, and maybe grandchildren, they are still your children. Reminds me of a sign I saw in a refrigerator some time ago that said you can stop worrying about your children when you check them into a nursing home. Um, till then, they are your children, and if you, you know how you pray and you encourage and you work with them and, and you have a concern that they follow the Lord. That was Job and his wife. But I have a feeling that as he sat on his porch at night sometimes and looked out over his vast empire, 
he, he was so grateful to God for the life that had been given to him and for, the, for all that God had blessed him with. Life couldn't get better. If anybody had seen Job and, and his situation at this time, they would have said, man, here is a man who is highly favored by God. And then the scene changes. And I was debating to what I would do with my next point because this word is not a word that is in my vocabulary regularly. I don't use that term. It's, it's repulsive to me. It, it feels very uncomfortable to use it, but yet as I thought about what I was coming to in chapter, uh, the last part of chapter one and into two and so on, hell was the only word that came to mind. It's a separation from God. It's suffering. It's torment. It's agony. And that was where, where Job was. So now you know. This was un, under protest, but here it is. So don't go home and say, well, this is the word Pastor Cal uses. No, it's not. Um, unless you're preaching up here. You can't use it, right? No. Um, the challenge came to Satan. How did that come about? Well, we're told that there was a day when the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. The angels had, had a meeting. We're not told what the meeting was about. Did they come to uh, bring reports of what they had done? What were their activities? And they came together to report. Did they come so that they could get new orders? Because we're told that the angels had different responsibilities in, in, in life. And there are ministering angels, and there are other angels, guardian angels, etc., that are there. The angels have a variety of responsibility. Did they come together? That's not the biggest question. The biggest question is what in the world was Satan doing there? Satan is a a, a, the word that means adversary. What was the adversary doing in the midst of all of these angels? We're not told what he was doing there. But maybe the same thing that Judas did for, for a year or two under, in, in the disciples when he met with them. He was the scoundrel. He was the treacherous one. He was the, the one who was committing treason, the one who was betraying Jesus. But he came along with the disciples as if nothing was wrong. And it may be that Satan was in that similar position. But for, but for whatever reason, Satan showed up with the angels. And God didn't reprimand him. God acknowledged him. And God accepted him in a sense uh, by engaging him in a conversation. Now, it appears as though this may have been an open meeting and that all of the angels heard Jesus, or God talking to Satan. We're not sure, but it's very possible that happened. So he asked him a question, where have you been? Where have you been? Oh, Satan's going, oh, I've been around. I've been here and there, and I just kind of wandered around the world. Uh, you know what he really was doing? We find it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It says, be alert and be of sober mind. Your enemy, that's Satan, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Do you think Satan's going to tell God that? No. Yeah, I don't know. I was just kind of wondering. You ever told your parents that when you were younger and you didn't want them to know where you were? I've been around. That's what Satan did. And uh, God immediately pointed out Job. And Job was a man of godly character. And God repeats Job's character here. Blameless, upright, man who fears God and shuns evil. 
Do you notice how quickly Satan responds? You can't tell me Satan hasn't had his eye on Job. He's been looking at Job as a prize in his collection if he could just get Job to change his mind. Satan has a quick response. He was very much aware of, of, of Job's life and, and the blessings that have come. And, and Job accuses Satan or accuses God, blames God for the problem or the, the goodness that, that Satan has had. You know, it was kind of like Adam and Eve. They both blamed God for their problems. Satan's also blaming him for his problem. He, he can't get Job to, to sin because God has been so good. God's put a hedge around him. This, this response cuts to the heart of the issue. Is God wor worth worshiping for who he is? Or do we worship God for what he does for us? What do we worship God for? And, Joel, and Satan said, Job worships God because you've given him all of this. Plus, and, I mean, you've protected him. Well, who wouldn't worship you? you know, the, the, uh, the Israelites wanted to make Jesus king because he provided food for them. I mean, after all, wouldn't that be great? You never, never had it work. It was just given to you. That's what Satan's talking to God about. This is, you've blessed him. You've, you've given him all of this good stuff. And then God offers Satan a challenge. And that's an interesting thought, and I have no answer for it, and nobody else does. Why did God give Satan the challenge? He says, well, if you think you're so smart, here's what you can do. And he gave him permission to terrorize Job. Now, we know that God is not interested in terrorizing innocent people. God doesn't do that. But here he gives Satan permission to do that. Now, some would say that God didn't know the depth of Job's commitment, and so this would be a way to find out. God didn't really know where Job stood, so if Satan attacks him, we'll see where, what happens with Job. I, I'm, I, I totally disagree with that thought because Scripture is very clear that God knows the heart of every person. God knows our heart right now. He can see us. He knows who, where we are, what we're thinking, what, what our plans are, etc. He knows us. He knew Job's commitment, but he gave Satan this challenge. And at the same time, it's important to note that Satan had no authority, no power on his own. It was only as God gave him permission that Satan could go ahead with this activity. Satan is not omnipresent. He's one being, can be at one place at one time. Satan is not omnipowerful, omni omniscient. He's not powerful or uh, omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He is limited in, in all of that unless God says, go ahead. Here you go. And so he did. And good Job carries out his plan, or Satan rather than carries out his plan. Now keep in mind that this is a conversation that has taken place in heaven. Nobody on earth has heard this. You and I are privileged. We know this. We know what happens. We know the end. Job doesn't know that. Job is living in today. He's just living day by day. And so this conversation was unknown to him. And suddenly, we read in, in verse uh, 
in verse 13. Um, One day when Job's sons were and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job, and, and the process began. First of all, it was the Sabians, a nomadic group of bandits who attacked and stole the, the oxen and donkeys and killed the servants. And one servant was left, and the second one said that the fire from God destroyed the sheep and the shepherds. A third messenger came and said the Chaldeans had come in three raiding parties in three different directions, and they had had stolen all the uh, camels and killed the servants. And you just imagine Job not even having time to process all this before the next messenger comes. And, and then I, I can just imagine him, if he were sitting on his porch, listening to these reports, on, on his porch, listening to these reports coming in, and he sees the fourth messenger coming. What do you think goes through his mind? Oh, no. Oh, no, not my children. How do you tell a parent that his child or her child has died? How do you tell them that all ten have been wiped out in one blow? I don't know how you would do that. I wouldn't want the job. I pity the messenger who came to Job and said, everything is gone. Everything is gone. Now, we, we need to be careful that we don't assign every disaster to either Satan's work or God's judgment. We need to remember we live in a fallen world, a world that is, messed, that, that is uh, reigned by sin. Sin reigns in this world and has messed up everything, has messed up our nature, has messed up, but all the things in this world, Satan has messed up because of sin. And so, it's not Satan saying, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to send this hurricane over here. I'm going to send a tornado. That, that's not necessarily the case. So we need to be careful that we don't blame Satan or God for, for all our disasters that come. And so what did Job do? What did Job do? At this point, Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. That's a normal response to grief and, and anger and frustration and, and pain and suffering. They got up, they tore their clothes, and, and the men shaved their heads. That was normal. But then he did something else. Then he fell to the ground in worship. In worship. There was no lying down on the ground, beating his hands on the ground, saying, why God, why, why me? He fell down and he worshiped. That was unexpected, but it showed his character. And part of that worship was acknowledging that everything was God, was God's. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall depart. I didn't come carrying a suitcase full of clothes. I didn't have that. I know I'm a bag of money. I didn't have anything. I came out of my mother's womb naked, just as every one of us here have. And, and we will go away with at nothing. Well, we'll have our clothes on our, on our back, I guess, in the, in the casket. But other than that, we'll have nothing. Doesn't matter your bank account and everything else. That's what you have. And Job, from his first breath, he was dependent on God. And since it was all God's, God could take it back anytime he wanted. Now, all of us know that up here. All of us have that in our head. We know that this is all God's. Everything you have, everything I have is God's. 
We just don't expect him to take it back until we die. It's when he takes it back that we say, wait a minute, God, what happened? And God says that it was my right to do this. It was my gift to you. I can take it back as I see, the, see fit. The blessings of the Lord, as Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He says, I don't have anybody else but God. Everything else is gone. I only have God left. Satan has waited for this moment to hear from Job those words of cursing God and then being ready to die. He's, he's just waiting with eager anticipation. You just see him kind of hovering over that, that household. But what does he hear? Praise be to God. Verse 22 confirms what God has said, that Job doesn't worship me because of what I give him. Job worships me because of who I am. The blessings that was there. Job recognized that that was not, he was not there uh, worshiping God because of his blessings. Then the scene changes back again to heaven. And the, the angels come back. Satan again. And I can almost... I, I don't know if you can, but I can almost picture God with kind of a smirk on his face as Satan comes on in. Ah, Satan, I proved you wrong. Job doesn't worship me because of what I've given him. He worships me because I am still worthy of worship. He doesn't say that. That's not like God, but I, I can just kind of picture that thought. They're humanly speaking. Uh, but they came back, and Satan came with him, and God said, have you, where have you come from? Oh, I've been back and forth again. This is the same story. Job, as if God didn't know where Satan had been. Verse 3 of chapter 2, then, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth, etc. And he kind of repeats everything he said earlier, except he says he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him. And so Satan is frustrated, and, and God's maybe a little frustrated because he, God had given him permission to do this. That, that, that's got to bother God in a sense, if that can be put that way. But God, this was in God's plan, and God allowed him to do that. Satan doesn't admit defeat, though, and Satan says, if you just hit, hit his body, get his body, you know, we'll give anything to have good health and the strong bodies and so on and avoid that physical pain. God says, it's, he's yours. Just don't kill him. So verses 7 and 8, he goes back and he attacks him again. He afflicts him with painful sores. Now, just, just uh, again, picture this scene. Job has had, and we don't know how long uh, a time period between uh, the first attack and the second, but there was, a, there was maybe not very much time, but just remember, Job has been hit with grief. He's lost everything. He is probably very vulnerable. That was the word I'd use for Job's life. He's vulnerable. Why? Because he's probably not had much sleep over the last couple of days since he's lost everything. He probably hasn't eaten a whole lot. As, as we do when we're filled with grief. And, and then the grief and the physical, or the emotional agony and suffering just was overwhelming to Job. And he's in that condition, and Satan comes along and wham, gets him with these sores, these painful sores, literally wicked, evil sores. Now, we're not told what kind of disease it was. It may have been a kind of leprosy. It may be a kind of smallpox. But whatever it was, uh, 
this was painful and hurtful. And the, some of the symptoms we read about throughout the, uh, the book, uh, this one here, the, in this section here, we're told that it was severe itching because he would take this broken pottery and just scrape his body. Just, that itching was just driving him nuts. I'm sure probably some of you had had that at times. He said, what do I do? I'm itching. I'm, I, I'm scratching, all, itching all over. I want to scratch that. So that was one of the things. We're told that there was insomnia, and I don't have time to give you all the references. You'll have to read the book, but that's a good idea. Why don't you read the book, and you'll find out some of these symptoms. There was insomnia. There were running sores and scabs. There were nightmares. There was bad breath. There was weight loss, chills and fever, diarrhea, blackened skin. In fact, it got to the point where the three friends who came to visit him didn't recognize him sitting on the ash heap. There was no Valium, probably no opioids, none of the, t the medications we would use today to take care of, of, of the pain. So where did he go? He sat on the ash heap. And it seems to me that's probably not the most sanitary place to sit with open sores. But there he was, sitting on the ash heap. Warren Wiersbe says that there the city garbage was deposited and burned, and there the city reject, rejects lived, begging alms from whoever passed by. At the ash heap, dogs fought over something to eat, and the city's dung was brought and burned. The richest sheik in the east, now a pauper sitting on the ash heap, scraping his body. What a picture. And then we find our first reference to his wife. First reference to his wife in verse 9. She shows up this verse and then she's gone. Oh, and by the way, Satan is gone too. Satan doesn't show up again in the book. From now on, it's between God and Job. Satan is out of the picture. But his wife shows up. Now, let's think about her, his wife for a moment. She lost ten children, just as Job did. She lost all the family income, just as Job had done. Now she comes and she sees a depressed discouraged, despondent husband, covered with sores, sitting on the ash heap. We got to give her a break for what her comments were, folks, because I think she, she, had, she had earned them. She, deserved, she, she felt the same. And rather than her seeing her husband in this condition for a prolonged period of time, she said, why don't you just give up? Why don't you give up? It's interesting that what Satan had tried to do, his wife was now an accomplice to Satan. Unwillingly, unknowingly, but she was now help, trying to help Satan. She was really helping Satan in, in getting Job to curse and die. So what was Job's response? Now, friend, uh, husbands, I, wa I want us to remember that God has given us our wives as helpmates. And we need to be very careful with the rebukes we give them. So don't, don't just say, well, I can rebuke my wife because Job did. Now, that, that, that's, that's wrong application of a biblical passage. But j just be careful with that. Use wisdom in that. But Job rebuked her. He said, you're a foolish woman. You're stunt lack understanding. You're insensitive. 
You see, Job's response was not, how can I get out of this situation, which was his wife's uh, response. His response was, what can I get out of this situation? What is it that God wants to teach me? What is this that God wants me to learn? He had no way of, he had no reason and no thought about getting out of this easy taking the easy way out and just either committing suicide or just saying, I curse God and I want to die. Later on, he told his friends in chapter 27, verse 5, I will never admit you are in the right. Until I die, I will not deny my integrity. Job was not giving in. He was going to fight this to the end. But he also realized that he couldn't accept all the good that God had given him without accepting the bad. They they went together. So we need to recognize the fact that that Job continued to hang on to his his, uh, uh, belief, his conviction. So what are the lessons we learn? Let's look at some of the lessons from Scripture that we can take with us for 2022 and beyond. First of all, our response in the time of crisis reveals our character. Job's character was revealed in the time of suffering. You see, till that time, we wouldn't have known that he really was this blameless, upright, God-fearing man until we see him on the ash heap saying, I will not give up my integrity. I will not give in. I will continue to serve and follow God. It was humble worship before God. On On the ash heap, I'm sure he continued to say, praise be the name of the Lord. Now, I, I've, as I was thinking about this, I realized that we, we sometimes had the wrong impression of Job because we read the King James Version of, of a verse in James that talks about the patience of Job. As I read through this book, I think about this, and I think, I don't want my children to be that patient because that's not patience, friends. If you read through Job, he didn't simply sit back and say, okay, I'm going to wait, God. No, he, he gave him, he, he pushed back on God. He, he was persistent is the term rather than patient. He was persistent. He persevered. He knew that he, was sin, he had not sinned to cause this. There was something going on, and I need to find out. I want to find out from God. Because he frequently said, I want an audience with God. Can I talk to God? But Job knew that it was God who he was going to stay with, and he was going to worship him to the very end. A second lesson we learn is that we only see the individual pieces of the puzzle. I enjoy putting jigsaw puzzles together, and when I get the box, I dump the pieces out on the table, and I say, whoa, how am I going to do that? Even after I straighten them all out and turn them all right side up, I still look at that, and I say, how am I going to put that all together? Then I realize, oh yeah, there's a picture on the box. And when I see that picture on the box, I say, oh, yes, that makes sense. You see, our life is kind of like those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. We see one piece and we say, where in the world does this fit? Because, you see, we don't have the box. God has the box. God has the picture. God says, trust me, I know what I'm doing. There's a piece for you right now. Put that piece in, and then I'll give you another piece. God has it all for us, laid out that way. Now, we've got to realize Job had never read the book of Job. 
He had no idea. We've read the book. We know how the end comes out. But friends, you and I have never read the story of our life to the end. So we don't know how it's going to turn out. But God does. And so we trust God as Job did. A third lesson is that God is sovereign. The word, the, 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 the Hebrew word Shaddai, meaning the Almighty, is found 31 times in the book of Job. 31 times conveys majesty, the power and the might of God. God is sovereign. He is the ruler of all. A fourth lesson is that suffering doesn't mean we have displeased God. We look for sin, as Job's friends did. What did we do wrong? How did we fail? Where did we fail? And it may be that it didn't fail. Jesus told the disciples that, that the, the man who had been born blind did not sin. His parents did not sin. But he was, but he was this, in this condition because the glory of God could be shown through this. So we remember that just because we suffer doesn't mean we've displeased God. Suffering, fifthly, reveals our purpose in following Christ. Why do we follow him? Is it because of all we get, as Job, as Job was accused of by Satan? Or is it because of who God is? Because Job says later on, he says, Though he slay me, yet I will be true to him. I am not giving in, because God is God, and I will serve him. Not because of what I get out, but because of who he is. And then sixth, the last time, last one, suffering causes us to seek the things which neither men nor devils can take away. You see, mankind can take our possessions away. The stock market can wipe out our savings. Health can destroy everything, much of what we have. Man can do that. Satan can do that. But when we store our treasure in heaven, there's nothing that's going to take that away. Serving God to the very end will pay eternal dividends, putting our treasure in heaven. Peter says that we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Let's pray. Father, what a message you've given to us through the book of Job. The ups and the downs of life. And Father, we all face those. Maybe not so, as severe as Job did, but Lord, we do face those. We have good times and then we have blessings and, and the good things and then we have those times when it seems like everything is gone. But Father, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. May we always remember that. And may 2022 be the year that we grow in our faith. We become stronger in our walk with you because you are the faithful God to the very end. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.